Good morning. We have congregational prayer this morning, and uh, I was thinking about Valentine's Day and love stories. You know, Valentine's Day is all about mushy stuff, right? Chocolate and flowers and romance and people trying to capture true love. And today we're going to be learning more about Jacob and Rachel and their love story. But there's another love story that was written a whole lot longer ago, so long ago that it was really before the world began, and that's God's love for you. So I'd like you to bow your heads with me. I'm going to be reading from part of Psalm 139 as a prayer this morning. Oh Lord, you've examined my heart. You know everything about me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You know my thoughts, even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel. You see me when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say, even before I say it, Lord. You go before me. You walk beside me and you follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. This is too wonderful for me to understand, too great for me to understand. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion as I was woven together in the dark of a womb. You saw me before I was born. You loved me before I was born. Every day of my life is recorded into your book, and every moment is laid out before a single day had passed. You loved me so much that you sent your son to die for me. Lord, we thank you for this incredible gift, for this story of true love, and we pray that you never let a day go by that we forget about your amazing love for us. In your son's precious name we pray, amen. Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29. In your, the Pew Bible in front of you, that's I think that's page 20. This morning we uh, had the fourth class in the new attenders class. So a few a few months ago, I, I started to feel like. We need to have a new attenders class because we've got plenty of people sort of on the, on the periphery. They're attending. They're not really moving towards the, the, the core of our congregation. And, and I think the best way to do that is to, to have some kind of a class so that everybody can get to know a little bit about the history of our church, the things that we believe, the things that we do, and how we're structured for decision-making uh, and things like that. And what is the process to become a member? So I, uh, we have offered it for the last uh, four weeks. I made it for three weeks and spilled over into four. Uh, so the next time we do it, I'll just go ahead and plan for four weeks, and then maybe we can get it all summed up in three. I don't know. Who knows? Um, but I appreciate everybody who has attended that class. Uh, if, um, and the thing I gave out today, a, uh, it's, not an, it's not a membership application. It's a, uh, an information sheet because we want to know a little bit more about you and get to know you a little bit better uh, as part of the membership process. If you, don't, if you weren't there and didn't get one of those, make sure that you say, hey, Wes, I need to get one of those membership sheets, uh, membership forms, um, and, uh, and we'll get that to you. Um, as part of our uh, class this morning, we were talking about, you know, the church's stance on several different things and controversial topics and blah, 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 things like that. 
uh, that come up. So I'll just go ahead. I'll just go ahead and start the sermon with a good controversial statement. This church affirms the traditional marriage of one man and one woman. And today in our passage, and now when I say something like that, you expect that you're going to hear a sermon about same-sex marriage, right? Well, today I'm going to, we're going to have a passage that will show you just how heterosexual people have messed that up too. We are not a church that says homosexuals are all bad. Homosexuality is a sin. But we're all a church that says heterosexuality is perfectly done in the church and perfectly done in the world. There is plenty for all heterosexuals to repent of too. Uh, and all of our sexual identity and all of our marriage practices and all of our view of each other, of men towards women and women towards men, it all needs to be redefined by the Lord. It all needs to be sort of revamped. We all have to sit around and say, okay, okay, uh, I, it is easy for me to be bigoted against these people. It's easy for me to discriminate against these people. It's easy for me to, dis to condemn these other people. But where is the log in my eye? It's easy for me to find the speck in somebody else's eye to condemn the wrong in them and then to assume that I've got it together. And the Lord completely affirms of all my conduct. But that's not the way it is. In our passage today, it's, if you look at it, it is, and if you look at it in one light, it's absolutely awful. You look at it in another light, it's kind of funny. But it wasn't funny to the people involved, I can tell you that right now. Okay? So we've been sort of working up to this, uh, really this passage today, because this is one of those momentous moments in the life of Jacob and in the, the, the people of Israel as well. As we've talked about Jacob, you know that he was born to Isaac and Rebekah. His older brother Esau was the one who traditionally should get all the blessing and the birthright and the authority in the family, uh, but Jacob stole it from him. And the Lord let that happen. Because Esau was no good. Esau did not consider anything about the Lord. He didn't consider the spiritual life. Everything to him was just earth, kingdom of earth. Never a thought that didn't seem like of the things, the plan that God had for him in his life. So this mantle of spiritual leader in the family was put over to Jacob. To Jacob. And not that Jacob was perfect, but Jacob had one or two priorities in the right place. And so God move that mantle of spiritual leadership over to him. And now uh, God is refining Jacob's life, refining Jacob's life, and may, turning him into the patriarch that Israel is going to need to be. And today, he's going to get married. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? The wedding day has finally arrived. A couple of weeks ago in our sermon, we talked about Jacob and his love for Rachel and how he didn't really have anything to pay the bride price. You had to pay the girl's father. It's not like uh, she was being sold in a market or anything like that, but she might have felt that way at times. But, um, and then there's, there's sort of, in any dating culture, in any, any way that people date and, and get married, uh, you can feel built up and you can feel torn down and devalued in any kind of system. But Jacob comes to uh, Rachel's father, Laban, and Laban is not a good guy. In today's passage, we'll uh, go ahead and confirm that for us. He comes to Laban and said, I'm in love with your daughter. I want to marry your daughter. But I have nothing. I don't have a bride price. I have no sheep. I have no goats. I have no camels. I have no jewels. I have nothing to offer you. But what I do have, I will give. I've got time and energy. And I will work for you for free. No wages at all. For seven years, 
in exchange for your daughter. All right? Now, when you start, if you start thinking about minimum wage and, 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 and do all the calculations on that, in, in the United States today, what would that come out to? I think it comes out to about $150,000. comes out to about $150,000. That's what he said. He said, I will offer that. I will offer uh, that, that amount of my time and energy, that value of my time and energy for your daughter. And Laban says, deal. And so Ray, uh, Jacob worked for seven years so that he could have Rachel. And the, one of the most romantic lines in the Bible, I wouldn't say that the Bible just has a whole lot of romantic lines. The ones in the Song of Solomon are kind of confusing and don't really make sense to us. Uh, but one of the most romantic lines in all of the Bible, what does it say about Jacob and his love for Rachel and those seven years that he worked? It says, they seemed but a few days to Jacob because of his love for Rachel. And so he put up with all of that delay, all of that uh, time, all of that waiting, and all of that abuse from Laban, I'm going to go ahead and assume, because he loved this girl that much. Okay? Now, we're going to talk about, uh, we're, we're sort of setting ourselves up for this ideal of marriage, this ideal of family. But I think we all know that rarely do our ideals of what marriage and family will end up being actually come true. Okay? Uh, when you get married, especially if you get married young, you have these ideas in your mind of what it's going to be like. And for many of you here, it did not turn out that way. It turned out to be a very different thing from what you had built it up in your mind. And it may have become one of the worst experiences you ever had. I hope that it turned out better than you could have ever imagined. But for so many people in our world, in our church, inside the church, outside the church, it turned into a nightmare. It turned into something awful. It turned into something terrible. And so when God's ideal is, is moved away from, we start to have problems. And many of you probably grew up in a family where it was not the ideal situation. There were lots of problems in the household. Maybe we put on a good front to the world. Maybe we didn't put on a good front to the world. Maybe people thought things were perfect, but they weren't. Maybe everybody knew things were not perfect, and they weren't. They were even worse than what you could have thought. And then you grow up thinking, when I get married someday, what will it be like? Will it be like that? Can I produce something different? Do, do I have hope for the future in terms of how my future household will be set up? Your family of origin affects you incredibly, incredibly. Uh, you will always have these family ties. Oh, here I'm going to make reference to TV shows. That middle picture, that's from a TV show way long. How many of you watched it? Uh, yeah? All right. It was a great show. And it was called Family Ties. And the truth of the, that, that saying, Family Ties, is that when you're related to somebody, you can never get rid of them. And some of them you don't want to get rid of. Some of them you'd like for this person to be out of your life. But because of your relation, your connection, you had a child with this person, they're always going to be in your life. But I hope that your family situations are getting better. And, and, and things only get better. Things oftentimes have to get worse before they get better. And so you experience growing pains. That's the other show up here on the Rhine. You experience growing pains. Where, hey, we're trying to make this work out, but all of us are in changing life stages all the time. We're all growing. We're all going from being children to being teenagers. Big changes there. We're all going, growing from being 
20-something to 30-something to 40-something to 50-something. Big changes in each of those uh, phases of life. And every time, every time that a big transition comes to the household, you experience growing pains. And then many of you here, uh, you're more like the Brady Bunch. You've blended a family. You've blended a family. It sounds so great. We have blended a family here. And the Brady Bunch made it look so good. They made it look so easy to blend it all together. But so many blended families out there feel like, we're not a blended family. We're a family that was put through the blender. I'll give you that one for free, all right? Should I just leave now on a high note? Well, that's what it feels like for some people. And how does all that happen? Well, I don't know how it happened in your family, but we're about to see how it happened in the patriarch's family. So, Genesis chapter 29, starting in verse 21. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. Teach us today from your word. Help us to come away better people. No matter what growing pains we have to go through, help us to get through um, this passage of Scripture and come away with some ideas for how we can grow a little bit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Then Jacob said to Laban, this is, this is after verse 20, after those seven years have passed and things are just perfect and he's so ready to get married. How long, how was the longest engagement in the room, I wonder? How many of you, your engagement lasted over a year? Over two years? Three years? Three years? All right, that's the, that's the record. Was it even more than that? Four years, okay. Engagements are supposed to be these wonderful times where you're anticipating something happening, but boy, it can get frustrating when the day just doesn't come. But then finally, for, Lab or for Jacob, the day is here, all right? It's been seven years, and he's been counting the days. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to consummate the marriage. I put that in brackets. I put that in brackets because that's not what the Bible in front of you says, okay? Translation, all right? Translation is hard to do. The, the literal, if you come to the literal of this, it's actually very crude. It's very crude. If you look it up in the ESV or the King James Version and, and say, okay, that's what he says. But this is what he means. But the NIV that we use in the, in the church here, it has translated into a, a very pleasant-sounding euphemism, which is sort of fine, except that in their mind, in their mind, really, they've been engaged and basically married, but there's one critical component of the marriage that's lacking. They haven't consummated. They haven't consummated uh, the marriage. And that's what I, I wanted to translate it to this. The original was so crude. The NIV here was so flowery. I wanted to make it sound a little bit more clinical and dry. Okay? All right. I want to consummate the marriage. <clears throat> so Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a, a feast. Of course. All right? Wedding days here, big party, big reception, big, uh, big banquet, big feast. But when evening came, Laban took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob unknowingly consummated with her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. Okay? Don't get too drunk at your wedding. Okay? How can this possibly happen? How can you not know? Well, it's dark. Maybe you've been drinking. Maybe she's veiled. You have no idea, really. It happened. And in the world that we live in, 
Stranger things have happened. Crazy things happen all the time. All right? So in a day with no electricity and uh, veils and perfumes and all this stuff, all right, let's go ahead and believe that this thing could happen. All right? Especially after a great feast where you know alcohol is involved. Verse 24, it seems kind of, um, it seems kind of just thrown in there. It's not really here nor there. It's not, it's not the argument. So why would you even throw that in there? I'll talk about that in a moment. When morning came, there was Leah. Uh, and and I, I want to say that the, the, the more literal translation of the King James Version just says, morning comes. Behold, Leah. Uh, it's very terse. It's very short. It's like, okay, what's going on here? You can feel this, this sort of reaction just... Uh, they didn't paint a broad picture. They painted a very sudden picture. If you were in that situation, I think that, is one, that might be what's in your heart. Sudden shock. Sudden shock. Jacob comes storming out of the tent with murder in his heart. That's not, I'm reading that into the text, but let's go ahead and say that that's a plausible feeling. What is this you have done to me? And that kind of question repeats itself a few times in the book of Genesis. The first time that it is said it is when uh, the fall of man has happened and God is talking to Adam and Eve and the snake. What is this you have done? What have you done? You have offended me to the highest order. What have you done? I know what you've done. I'm saying, how in the world do you dare do this to me? Do this to another human being. What have you done? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And it's here where the real Bible scholars will chuckle. Because what does Jacob's name mean? Deceiver. Why have you deceived me? Oh, I think Jacob's getting a little taste of what he fed to Esau. Laban replied, It's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week. And there was a special sort of uh, blessing. I didn't research it too much, but there's a blessing week that's just for her. It's a special thing that's, that is, it's her time. And so she gets seven days where it's not normal life again. Okay, it's not back to normal life. This, this week is just for her. It's a special time for her. Okay, finish this daughter's bridal week. Then we will give you the other, the younger one also, in return for another seven years of work. Hmm, gotcha. Gotcha. I think I left a verse out. What does verse 27 say, or 28 say? Yep. I'll go ahead and read it from up here. I should have proofread my PowerPoint a little better. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob consummated with Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. Okay. I want to talk about some of the reasoning behind this story, this story and everything that's in it. It's, um, <clears throat> it's more than just a good story or a good story about a Bible character. Remember who wrote the book of Genesis. It's Moses. 
Moses wrote the book of Genesis. These stories were part of the children of Israel's history. They knew them all. I don't think that Moses was uh, taking and, and writing down a story that none of them knew. At least I would think that most of the tribal or the clan elders would know all of these stories. But while Moses and the children of Israel are wandering in the desert, while they're out there at Sinai, um, he is, uh, God is creating a nation. And it's very important for every nation to know where they came from. What is your origin story? And so Moses is giving this to all the people as their origin story so that to make sure that every generation has access to the story of who you are and where you came from. And in the origin story here, in the origin story here, he, uh, you, you have the 12 tribes of Israel down there at, at Sinai. And all of them are related to Abraham. And all of them are related to Isaac. And all of them are related to Jacob. Those are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are your fathers. Everybody here has those three men as your ancestor. But here we come to this, this part of the story where not every one of you, every one of you does have Sarah as your ultimate mother. Everybody does have Rebecca as your ultimate mother. But not everybody has Rachel as your ultimate mother. We now, uh, remember, with Abraham and Sarah, infertility was a problem. It was only after miracle, a miracle that they had Isaac. And then after that, Isaac and Rebekah even experienced some infertility. And it was only after uh, Isaac prayed for Rebekah that God gave them two sons, two sons. But now here we come to Jacob. No infertility problem uh, here, okay? Well, actually, there will be for Rachel, but not, not for Jacob. And here is where all the story is going to change and branch out because God wants to make a nation. You can't make a nation when it's just uh, one person having one child or, or a couple having one child or a couple having two children. It's going to be very hard to make a nation out of that. So here we finally come to Jacob, and he has how many sons? Twelve. And now you can make a nation out of that. You can make a nation out of that. So all of the children of Israel have the same fathers way back there, but now we're branching out into the part where they all, some of them will have different mothers. And so that's why it's important for everybody to tell you, hey, I know that Jacob loved Rachel, but I'm not related to Rachel. I'm related to Leah. Oh, well, let me tell you that story. Let me make sure you know how that happened. And by the way, I know that there's some animosity between you, your clan and this other clan over here. Why is that? Let me make sure that I write this down so that everybody knows where all this animosity actually comes from. Because the patriarch's family was not perfect. So they write down a very um, honest family story. And I don't know how old you were when you started hearing the honest family stories. At a certain point, you were growing up, and everything's just perfect in the family. Everything's just perfect, even though you know not everything's perfect. But at a certain point, somebody's having a conversation, and they make reference to something, and you say, what's that about? And everybody's just kind of like, oh, boy. Are you going to know? Are we going to tell you, or are we not going to tell you? But at a certain age, you kind of need to know. You need to know why the dynamics are in there. You need to know who offended who and how. And so at the, at the bottom of Mount Sinai, Moses is gathering everybody around and saying, hey, all of you, let's face the facts of where we came from and why, even though it was not ideal, God has made something ideal out of us. He's making an, an ideal nation, a blessed and perfect nation out of us. Okay? 
Now, the other thing, the other thing I, I want to emphasize a little bit here is that this story and so many stories in the Bible are descriptive, not prescriptive. Uh, people in the Bible will talk about the Bible saying, well, the Bible teaches polygamy. The Bible approves of polygamy. Eh. Every time, every time there's a polygamous situation, it turns out bad. So even though all of those patriarchs had more than one wife, don't take that as prescriptive, as this is how you ought to work. This is how you ought to live. No man can say, well, Jacob had four wives. I want four wives. Any man says that to me, I'm going to ask him first, how did that work out for Jacob? Did Jacob want four wives? Jacob actually did not want four wives. He wanted one wife. He was tricked into, into polygamy. We'll, give him, we'll throw him a bone a little bit. But all the, other, all the other patriarchs in there that had more than one wife, that took uh, concubines, took other women, doesn't work out well for them. Doesn't work out well for them. So the Bible describes in very honest detail what happened. But just because it happened doesn't mean that this is what God prescribes this ought to happen. This, what's descriptive is what did happen. Prescriptive is what ought to happen. Okay? Make sure that, and obviously nobody here is going to start arguing for polygamy or anything, but there are ways that we do that. That when people read the Bible, they say, well, I'm going to do this because such and such did this in the Bible. Is it a story prescribing what you ought to do, or is it just a story describing what did happen? And even if God uses these circumstances or these situations for good, please don't say, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and mimic that, because it may not work out. It, in so many cases, it will not work out. If you want prescribed um, behavior, go to the Sermon on the Mount, go to the Gospels, go to Paul's epistles, and it will give you a lot of prescription for behavior. But a lot of times the stories, the narratives in the Bible... Don't take those as, this is what I ought to do. All right. And let's look at this all. Let's just go ahead and admit, an incredible quagmire has just been created in the patriarchal family. A huge mess. And a, a, a situation that is it's setting up for volatile arguments for generations to come. What really went on here? What all was happening? And how did it affect everybody? Several years ago, there was a movie called Vantage Point. At the very beginning of it, there was an assassination attempt on the president. And the Secret Service agent starts going around uh, trying to investigate and see what happened. And there were several different witnesses that he interviewed. And all of them gave a different story. All of them saw it differently. And some of their stories conflicted. Or some of them stories didn't really match up. But if you took it all and maybe put it in a blender, or if you took it all and kind of pieced it together from everybody's different vantage point, you can start to see their take on what happened to them, on what happened that day. So that's kind of what I want to do here today. I want to look at each of these individuals involved in this story from a different vantage point, okay? We'll start with Rachel. We'll start with Rachel. Poor Rachel. Her only sin was being preferred. Her only sin was being pretty. Her only sin was being the one that was wanted. And she was the younger one. So custom... And sometimes I, I, I hear what Laban said about the older one and the younger one and everything, and I say, is that really true? I don't know if that's really true. I'm not sure if I can trust anything that comes out of Laban's mouth. But we'll go ahead and, and say, all right, we'll, we'll go ahead and say that, okay, that's, that, that, that really was the custom. Well, so Rachel's just a victim because her older sister hasn't gotten married yet. And guess what? She's been waiting a long time, too. Jacob's been waiting seven years. Guess what? Rachel's been waiting seven years, too. 
She had every expectation, or she had every right to expect that leading up to the big day, the big feast, that her new life and her great joy is about to begin. And I don't know if you've ever had that kind of a situation where you've got your sights, you've got your hopes all set on a day, a circumstance that you know is about to change. This is the day. Maybe it's graduation day. Maybe it is your wedding day, your engagement day. Maybe it is uh, getting a new job or moving away or whatever it is. You've got your sights set on a day, a time, uh, a, a circumstance, uh, something that you gain, something that is taken away from you finally that you didn't want. Whatever it is, you set your sights on that day, and then just like Rachel, it's taken from you. Rug right out from under your feet. All the joy that you expected, all the freedom you expected, all the new life you expected, taken away. And it's not fair. The bride price was paid for her. Christ shed his blood on the cross for you. What if you found out that it wasn't applied to you, it was applied to another? Oh, you'd be mad. Because you were looking forward to something. Your redemption was coming. It was nigh. The great eternal joy was just about there. And then was taken from me. And taken by whom? Your father? Dad, how could you do this to me? You knew that I wanted this. You knew this was good for me, and you've taken it away from me. To be stabbed in the back by somebody so close to you, ouch, it was taken away from her. A great honor gone in a moment. Leah. Leah. Leah's only sin or problem was not being preferred. She was rejected, not by the Lord, not by her father, but by this one suitor, and maybe by all suitors that ever came by. Nobody ever wanted to pay the bride price for her. There was some problem, some flaw, something with her that nobody, nobody wanted her. And she sees that others are around her are valued, and she is not valued. And then, your sister's wedding day comes. Your sister's wedding. Shouldn't it be my wedding day first? And I don't know if you've, how many, single, how many weddings you ever went to as a single person, but I was very happy. I think I said this before. After I got married, I could enjoy weddings a lot more. Because every time I went to a wedding as a single person, I brought along a toaster oven, and a lot of bitterness. I didn't handle it very well. And so in the midst of this sort of sadness that Leah probably has, that it's her sister's wedding day when it should be her wedding day, here comes Dad. <clears throat> hey, is that what you're wearing? Don't wear that. Here, take this. Take this. Put this on. Put this on. Here's some, your mom's perfume. Here, put this on. Put this on. What are you doing? Dad, what's going on? What's, what, why are you doing all this? What, what, uh, put this on, put this on. Here, here, put the veil on, put the veil. That's Rachel's veil. Just put it on, just put it on. Dad, what are you about to do? Dad, won't he notice? Dad, how can this turn out good for me? It's dark, he's drunk. Just do what I tell you. Just do what I tell you. And so here's Leah. And none of these girls have any kind of sovereignty over their own lives. They have no say in what happens to them. 
she is thrust in to a place she didn't expect to be. Does she want to be there? And I have a feeling in the back of her mind, after it's all over, and after she knows, maybe years later when she kind of comes to terms with everything that happened, she said to herself, it wasn't right, it wasn't fair, but it turned out good for me. Maybe, it, maybe I got what I wanted. I didn't get it in the right way, but I got it. The shame that I had is taken away. It wasn't the method that I would have chosen. Here I am stuck with this man. We're stuck together. Nothing can be done about it. There's no annulment. There's no divorce. Here I am with this guy who really didn't want me, but he's ended up with me. Are we going to be miserable for the rest of our lives? Well, most of the married women I know are miserable anyway. I'm speaking in this culture, not our culture. What does it matter? I can't do anything about it. I'll just make apples from apples. I'll just uh, make lemonade with, with everything that's been given to me here. But she experiences the gospel a little bit. Because in the gospel, there's the bad news at the beginning that God and I are estranged. There's an ugliness in me that he is not attracted to. And in the gospel, the value of one is applied to another. Christ is the perfect one, the preferred one. But his perfection, his beauty, his wonderfulness is applied to the ugly sinner. And I didn't expect this. I didn't expect for God to completely embrace me like this. I didn't expect to have this joy. I didn't expect to have my shame and disgrace taken away. I didn't expect to rise to this status. But I'm glad. And I know it was a horrible betrayal, the cross. I know it was a horrible thing for somebody else to go through. But I'm certainly happy that it's been applied to me. Of course, in the cross, there is no deception. The father didn't trick the son. The son went there willingly, knowing exactly what the truth was. So the, the metaphor isn't, isn't perfect. But the truth still remains. The beauty of one was applied to the ugliness of the other. And that was good news for me. And then we come to Jacob. This is Jacob. This, is, this, uh, this painting is him uh, putting up the pillar. Uh, a couple of ch a chapter ago, he, was, he had a vision. And he put up a pillar there where he had the vision. And so that's what that is. And so here's Jacob. The deceiver has been deceived. He got his just deserts. Now he knows Esau's anger, and he's stuck. He's stuck. There's a pastor I know that I was listening to him preach. Uh, he was preaching at a marriage conference, and marriage didn't turn out for him like he'd wanted it to either. It didn't end in divorce, but he and his wife, he and his wife, after they got married, uh, discovered problems, uh, and they so they went to marriage counseling, and. In the marriage counseling, this is the big takeaway that he took. He said, I don't think anybody should go to marriage counseling. Marriage isn't the problem. Marriage is a good thing. Marriage doesn't need to be fixed. I need to be fixed. And he realized, I didn't need marriage counseling. I needed counseling. 
The problem wasn't us. The problem wasn't God's institution of marriage. The problem was me. And he and his wife both separately went to therapy, got their own hearts fixed. Better, not perfect, but better. And guess what healed? The marriage. Uh, we were listening to a testimony of somebody in Celebrate Recovery the other night. It was a video testimony. And this man and woman, they, they'd had their, their troubles. And what the guy said, he said, what we say around here is, two sickies don't make a well. All right? He was emotionally ill. His wife was emotionally ill. They got married, and it didn't turn out better. They didn't fix each other. It just got worse and worse and worse. Where am I going with all this? Jacob is stuck. And he can view it a couple of different ways. Well, actually, he can't view it a couple of different ways. We can view it a couple of different ways. In our day and age, people would get this annulled and get it done and get it out of the way. Never even happened. Legally, never even happened. Nobody would even, you wouldn't even have to admit it to anybody else that it ever happened. But for them, they know the theological truth behind it. After you consummate with somebody, the two have become one flesh. It's a done deal. Spiritually and forever, the two of you are linked. And you are never getting rid of this person. You can get rid of them legally, whatever, that's fine. But spiritually, emotionally, mentally, in the back of your mind, this person is a part of your life forever after you have done this. And sometimes being stuck is not so bad. I had another friend um, who said that he and his fiance argued, and then after they got married, they argued. And he said, I worried so much more before the marriage. Why? Because every single one of these arguments could end in her breaking the engagement. But after we were married, and remember, this is two people that have a very high view of marriage, so it works for them. Maybe it wouldn't work for everybody, but it worked for them. He said, after we were married, we're stuck together. We might as well have the argument, have the discussion, have the talk. To him, there was much more security in getting to know each other, in hashing these problems out after the marriage than there was before. Because to him, at least, if they had the high view of marriage, there's no danger of somebody walking out. Or there's less danger. Or there are financial and legal ramifications. <laughs> there are things that make you think twice. Getting, you know, breaking up, people, people break up and get back together all the time. And people get divorced all the time, too, but it's a process. And it costs a lot. And when it's a divorce, you really do count the cost before you go through with this. So, in the marriage, for him, there was a lot more security and, and uh, freedom to work it out. So he's stuck. Okay. The funny thing about him is how much did he love Rachel? How much did he love Rachel? How much, how valuable is this woman? I wish everyone felt this valuable. Because he paid the bride price twice. I worked for her for seven years, and I'll do it again. Wow. Incredible value he placed upon her. That is his only, maybe his only virtue uh, uh, that we've seen up to this point. And then there's Laban. Oh, no, let me go ahead. They're stuck. They're stuck, but a quagmire is certainly built. And this is the, this is the patriarch's family tree. 
So Jacob is married to all four of these women. And don't think of it as, he got married four times. Good he, didn't, he didn't get married and divorced four times. He's married to all four of them at the same time. Leah is the first wife. And in the Old Testament, um, this, is, this is part of the quagmire that's produced. In the Old Testament, in their cu customs and their culture, um, the first wife, the first wife, legally, customarily, has certain rights that the other wives don't. Okay? She has more rights. Sounds logical, right? If you're going to have a polygamous society, the first wife should have more rights. Good. But she's not the most loved. She has the most rights, but she doesn't have the preference. And that is going to set up a lot of heartbreak and a lot of animosity between all the sons. All the sons down here, because Ray, Leah, and we'll talk about this next week, she's going to have a whole bunch of sons. She's quite fertile. Rachel has two. Has two. Years later. Years later. These six right here, in fact, all these other ones too, are all going to be grown by the time these two are born. And you'll notice one of them here is wearing a Technicolor dream coat. His name is Joseph. And when he is born, the quagmire that's produced is this. Jacob may have loved all of these sons until this one was born. And then all the affections that he had for all the others were placed on the one. And didn't they know it? And their feelings for Joseph are going to get so bad that they're going to conspire as to what to do with him. And you don't want your brothers conspiring about what to do with you. When you participate in two households, create two households, you create a tension that is there and felt. And it, and it doesn't mean that there's... When, you, when, when he has these four households, folks, it's not like one of them is, is the, the place where he feels most comfortable. He's a little bit tense in every one that he goes to because there's a great Chinese movie. About 100 years ago, they still had polygamy. And there's this, this movie called Raise the Red Lantern. And in, in, in this, the master of the house will raise a red lantern at whatever house, whatever room in the house he's going to stay in that night. And so behind the scenes, all the women are fighting and backbiting and conspiring against each other so that the master will stay with them. It does not create a nice place to live. And in the movie, the cinematography is really incredible because the master, even this movie, even though he's the principal character that's causing all the problems in this movie, you never see his face. And the metaphor is that these women have a common enemy, and they think it's each other, and they can't see him. It's an incredible movie. It's about three hours long of reading subtitles of things that you don't understand, so I don't necessarily recommend it for you. Okay? But it really illustrates what happens when there's a couple of households and somebody participates in a couple of households and everybody wonders, what's it like over there? What are you doing over there? Is it better over there? Is it worse over here? And everybody starts ranking things in their mind and it, it can get ugly. Favoritism among the wives leads to favoritism among the sons. And then there's Laban, and he's the jerk in all this, the jerk of the highest caliber. He's got, he's got two daughters. And in his culture, in his culture, 
in a lot of cultures, the daughters like this, they're not seen as assets, they're liabilities. All right? Because they're not going to be in the household producing things for your household forever. At a certain point, you're going to marry them off and they're gone. So you might as well do that as soon as you possibly can. All right? That is the, that is the, the truth of the ugliness of all this. And so Laban's got Leah here that no other suitor wants. So she's becoming a liability, and he wants to get her, get her out of the house. So I think in his mind, I think in his mind, he's looking at his daughter here, and he's saying, how, how can I make this work out for me? I'll tell you what I'll do. When Jacob's good and drunk, I'm going to give him Leah. I'm going to give him Leah. Now, I don't know how Jacob's going to react to that. He might just pull up stakes and go. And if that's the case, he's going to take Leah with him. And then I've got Rachel here, and every suitor around wants her. I won't have any problem getting rid of her. Okay, so, Leah, so Laban says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give him Leah, and Leah will go, and Jacob may go too, but that's fine with me. I've already gotten what I wanted out of him. Or I'll offer him Rachel too, and I don't know if he'll take it or not, but if he does, i got seven more years. So for Laban, all of this is a win-win situation. He's a user, and he's looking to see, how can I use my daughters for my profit? How can I use Jacob for my profit? How can I make all of this work out just cheery for me? And he's good. And he does it. And I don't know how many people that you know that are like Laban who can find profit in any situation, find out how to use people in any situation, but they are, they are rough to be around. And I think he gives Jacob some of these little jabs. Remember what he says? Uh, Around here, it's, 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 it's not our custom to give the younger before the elder. And I think that that's a subtle jab uh, to Jacob. Jacob, we don't treat the firstborn so shoddy around here. I don't know where you come from, down Beersheba, where the firstborns, like Esau, can get treated so badly. But that doesn't happen up here. We honor the firstborn up here. And this will set up a hostile relationship with Jacob and Laban from here on out. And they're going to be together another 10 years or more together. How, like, how would you like to have decades ahead of you because of all this? All right, let's, let's look at one more vantage point. Let's look at the, the vantage point of omniscience. This is God. He's got the whole world in his hands. And he's looking at all these people saying, goodness, how can I redeem these sinners? How can I redeem these sinners? All of these people here, they're imperfect, and I want the best for them. How can I possibly make the best thing happen for all these peoples in this uh, huge quagmire? Well, out of this, Jacob, out of this, and I don't think that God caused all this. I think that God works with all this. Maybe in the, uh, there, there is no original plan with God because of his omniscience, but he could have certainly made 12 sons come from Leah. But what happens? What does God do with this terrible situation? In Jacob's life, he becomes a true nation. The patriarchs start having one child or just two child, children. They start having a whole bunch. A nation is starting to be formed. Rachel, she will be loved, and she will have sons, and her sons will be favored. She will get the love that she needs. She will have the honor that was due to her. And what about Leah? Leah, 
who is rejected by men, loved by God. Leah, who was not wanted, will actually have a lot of children. Half the nation of Israel is going to come right from Leah. And a few prominent, uh, few prominent sons are going to be born on down the line. Because if you notice, if I can buzz back up here, her first son is named Reuben, then Simeon, and then Levi. And Levi is the family of all the priests. All right? So all these people who serve in the presence of the Lord, they're going to come right from Leah. But it's the next one. Whoop. It's the next one. Judah. Judah comes from Leah. And who is Judah? Who came from the tribe of Judah? You have a couple of very significant people. You got King David, the greatest king that Israel has. The height of their Old Testament uh, existence, King David. And then maybe a step higher even, his son, King Solomon. Solomon the wise. All of them come from Leah. But all of those kings and everybody else pale in comparison. The prophets, the priests, the kings that descend from Leah, they all pale in comparison to the greatest honor that she could ever dream that she doesn't even know about that will happen to her someday. And that is that the Lord Jesus Christ is from the tribe of Judah. She, not Rachel, she is the ancestor of the Messiah. And then there's Laban. There's Laban. And in spite of himself, in spite of his sin, in spite of his deception, in spite of him being such a user and a manipulator, he gets a part to play in salvation history. So, everybody gets a little something out of this quagmire. All right. Let's come... That's the heavenly perspective. Let's come back to the earthly perspective. Do you come from a blended family? Do you come from a family where... This is not exactly the portrait that I thought we would be by now. I didn't know that all these people would be in my household. I didn't know I'd be married to this person someday. I want you to know this is a family in our church. They have blended a family. And it has not been roses and cherries and everything all the time. But they do their best. They do their best. And the thing that will make it so much richer and fuller and so much more love in their household is if every one of them can think about the others and say, you know what? Uh, we're here together. We didn't plan on being here together. We didn't think that this is the way that things were going to turn out. But let me think about everything that you've been through. You're my half-sibling. You're my step-sibling. You're my step-parent. Life hasn't just been perfect for you. Let me think about things from your vantage point. What have you been through? I remember even, I don't come from a blended family, but several years ago, I started thinking about my parents and everything that they had seen in their life and how they had been raised, and what it was like in their houses growing up. And I started to say, you know what? I'm going to cut them some slack. They've gone through difficult things just like I have. So anytime you can look at your step-sibling, half-sibling, step-parent, and say, what have you gone through? The more that you can know about them, the more that you can relate to them, the more that you might be able to love them the more that you might be able to forgive in them. And you never, you just never know 
how God will help you come to terms with your family of origin. You never know how he might redeem your childhood. You never know how he might redeem your adulthood. You never know how he might redeem your entire household. If you'll just take the standpoint that he does and say, God loves everyone in this house, every sinner in this house, every person in this house who comes from brokenness, has brokenness in their heart, but God is wanting to redeem all of these people and me. Maybe, just maybe, if I can take that vantage point, then our whole family might be redeemed and we might turn out to be somebody someday in the Lord. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, all of us come from imperfect parents, imperfect households. All of us have had things happen to us that were not fair. All of us have done things to others that just weren't fair, said things to others that just weren't fair. And then life just throws things at us that aren't fair. And my prayer today, Lord, is that you will help us to be a nice blended family, a nice blend of sinner and saint, assuming the best, working in love. As a church family, here we are, blended together from very different backgrounds. Help us to see each other's vantage point. Help us to get to know one another. Help us to love one another. And Lord, redeem our pasts, our presents, and give us a good future in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. You are dismissed.